This is a mental health podcast, so difficult topics may arise. Please proceed with caution. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Getting Better, Stories of Mental Health. I'm Micheline Malouf. And I'm Nadia Desi, and we're your hosts and licensed therapists here to destigmatize mental health one episode at a time. In each episode, we dive into our guests' special experiences with mental health, coping mechanisms, and how they have embraced their own mental health journey. And today we're talking with Jay Shetty. He is an English author, former Hindu monk, and life coach of Indian descent. And he's the host of his podcast, On Purpose. Welcome, Jay. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to, to talk about some important conversations surrounding mental health. And we know that you're amazing at what you do. So I'm really excited to get some insight into your experiences. And let's get to the depth of it with how are you really feeling today? I am feeling excited, enthusiastic. I, I feel good energy from both of you. And so and I've been feeling great energy. I had a great conversation with my team this morning. At the same time, I got off a flight from Dubai yesterday at 4 p.m. and then had an evening event. And I was only in Dubai for one and a half days. I slept 10 hours on the plane on the way back. So that made up for it. But the two nights before that, I slept a collective five hours. So there's a part of me that there's an underlying sense of fatigue. But apart from that, I'm feeling great. Usually we kind of just dive right in and get deep. So I hope you're okay with that. I love that. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) What was your experience around mental health as a child or as a teenager? So the words mental health probably didn't come into my vocabulary until very later on. And as a young kid, I think whatever I went through, my only way of processing it was this is normal because that's all I experienced. And so I was heavily bullied as a young boy for being overweight in school. And I was also one of like two or three South Asian people in my whole primary school or elementary school, as I believe you call it here. And so I was bullied for being overweight. I was bullied for being Indian. I was bullied also for being uh, a higher achiever in my elementary school because my parents would always force me to study more and do my homework on time and raise my hand in class. And so that wasn't the culture in the school I went to either. And so I was heavily bullied. I was I was beaten up plenty of times. I would come home with bruised eyes. I would, and when I would tell my mom and dad about it, my mom would come into school and have a word with the teachers. And, you know, and that was almost more embarrassing because obviously she was trying to protect me, but you're now that kid where your mom's coming into school. And I've talked about this experience with therapists, with coaches, with friends, and with my parents over time. And it's really fascinating to me because I can't really find where that landed and how it affected me in a negative sense. I think the way I saw that was it's normal. Everyone pretty much has to go through this. And I continued to want to be a good, kind human because I was raised by my parents to be one. And I felt so much love from my mom that that kind of carried me through a lot of my earlier discomfort as a child. And so I believe that my mom's love, at least when I like to think about it, really pushed me through. And I love that this is already turning into a therapy session. I'm not, I'm not answering these questions now. I am just revealing and thinking out loud. So if you see me shift from answering interview questions to 
just sharing, then I apologize as it benefits no one who listens to the rest of this. Uh, but I'm taking this opportunity to sit down with two experts and share my experiences. And then when I turned about 14, 15, I lost a lot of weight. Uh, I gained a lot of what I would call false confidence because I was hanging around in the wrong circles. Uh, I was getting involved in things that I'm not proud of. I was getting involved in experimenting with drugs and messing around, being a troublemaker at school. And I think part of that was a rebellion of having been a good kid for a long time and not feeling like I got anything back from it. So it was almost like I went through all this pain. I was good during that time, but that didn't get me anything in life. I didn't feel that teachers treated me differently. I still felt some racist experiences too. And so I guess I decided that rebellion and being bad was a better option because being good didn't get me anywhere. And so I spent probably four years. And again, by the way, up until this point, there's no concept of what is mental health. There's no thought of how do I feel? I spent a lot of my teens doing now what we call journaling, which I didn't know then, but I would write poetry and it would be all my feelings. So I had stacks and stacks and stacks of books that I believe my mom still has at home where I would just scribble and write lyrics and poetry and music. It was all personally just sharing what I was going through and what I was feeling. And growing up, one of my favorite artists was actually Eminem. One of the things I appreciated about him was his ability to be so brutally honest. And I think at his time, he was almost sometimes brushed aside for being so honest. But I also believe that some of the work that he did about sharing his own experiences with his parents, like his mother or his father who left him or his experiences, I felt that really gave me permission as a child to openly share my experiences. Probably around 17, 18, when I really felt I was coming into myself, I almost didn't understand people who went through depression. And so I actually had a cynical and skeptical view. And I would think to myself, how can you be depressed? What's there to be depressed about? Like, I've been through a lot. I know people have been through a lot. We're fine. Like, and, and I almost didn't understand it. And then when I went through what I believed was my first experience of depression, which was at the age of around 25 to 26, when I left the monastery, when I left uh, being a monk in that path, I hit it for the first time and I was in denial. I didn't want to, I didn't want to use the word because I didn't want to accept it because I just felt that if I accepted it, that it would affect me more. And so at that point when I experienced it, I sat back and I had a really important realization, which was just, if you haven't experienced something, don't doubt it if someone else is experiencing it. If you haven't been through something, you have no ability to question whether someone's going through it or not. And it took me until 25, 26 years old to really, truly accept that experience. And so now when I hear about someone's emotions and experience, I process it very differently to what I did growing up. I hope that gives you a bit of a timeline. I hope I, hope I didn't go too off. No, absolutely. And there's so much to unpack there because as you were talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, this is so powerful. One of the things that I wanted to kind of go back to was you mentioned you were bullied as a child and you felt like maybe the love of your mom kind of offset that traumatic response for you. And that's something that we think is really important to mention because Bullying is traumatic. Bullying is painful. Bullying, you know, it, it hurts your self-esteem. It hurts your self-image, the way you, you know, 
feel comfortable around talking to people or not, but there's something that offsets trauma in every single situation. And one of the things that we encourage people to learn about is what we call resilience factors. And one of those things is having somebody that you go home to after those terrifying experiences and knowing that you're loved and you're supported from people that matter to you, it offsets the traumatic responses. So that's why there's people that get bullied and end up really traumatized. And then you have other people that get bullied and they seem to be doing okay. It's what is happening when they get home? What is happening? What friends do they have? What support systems do they have at school? And it sounds like for you, you had that love, like you got bullied, you were hurt physically, and then you would go home and you had your mother like standing up for you and you had your mother taking care of you. So that's really important. And I thank you for sharing that because that kind of opens up that dialogue and that important conversation on what we need. Yeah. What what else is a resilience factor? I'm intrigued in the idea that, you know, I feel so many people also today, their parents say things to them like, no, you are beautiful. And and any kid who hears that from their parent, it's kind of like, no, I'm not. Come on. You're my dad. You're my mom. You have to say that. And I think about this. I'm not, I'm not a parent yet, but I often think about this, that you know, if my child was bullied for looking a certain way or for having a particular shape of body or whatever they experience in their life, I always wonder, you know, the simple words, no, you are beautiful. No, you are wonderful. What else is there? Because I feel like a lot of kids actually repel. And my parents never said things like that to me. My parents never gave me affirmations or they never told me to say things out loud. They just were there. And and I think it was more their presence that I felt their love as opposed to even what they said. Micheline and I are both big believers that affirmations aren't usually effective if you don't truly believe them yourself. So if you're struggling with body image, going in front of the mirror and telling yourself that you're beautiful or having your parents say it is not really going to work. It might actually make you feel worse because then you start to find reasons why you're not beautiful or why you're not strong. So we like to focus on like emotions and how you can self-care for yourself in the moment to make yourself feel better. And the resilience factors that you're mentioning, it's not the parent telling you like, they're just jealous of you. Like those types of things don't necessarily help you, right? Um, they kind of like are, Ugh, no, get, get away from me. Like that doesn't even make sense. Of course, they're not jealous of me. They're hurting me. Um, but I think it's the felt love. It's feeling safe. So like coming home, your parents can tell you you're great all they want, but if they're on their phone and they're not warm and 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 comforting and really talking to you about emotions, like Nadia say, like getting down to that emotional part of it, it's like, how did that feel? What does that make you think about yourself? What do you need from me right now? Do you want me to go talk to the teachers? Do you want me to teach you how to talk back to these kids? What do you need? Feeling like you have a support is a resilience factor because it's not superficial. It's deep and it's caring. And there's other things like being in sports is a resilience factor because you have a team and like a community to go to and let out some energy. Uh, having uh, hobbies, like an outlet, maybe even like writing poetry, reading books, allowing your emotions to process through. So there's so many things that can be counted as resilience factors. It's not just like one thing. It really depends on the person. Yeah, I think music genuinely became a huge one for me. And I look back and I was like, I was journaling before journaling was a was a trend. And I read those notes sometimes when I'm back in my bedroom, at, back in London at home. And it's really remarkable for me to see just how much I was able to let out through a creative expression as opposed to in any other forum because I didn't really have, I don't believe I had many people to talk to growing up. I was the eldest, so I have a younger sister. I didn't really talk to her about how I felt. I didn't always feel that I could talk to my parents about 
what I was going through or how I felt because not because they weren't loving and there for me. It was more so as a South Asian kid, the the goal is do well at school and everything's good in life. And so I didn't really have that connection to share and open up. I do today more than ever, but it wasn't there when I was younger and I didn't have any older siblings. And so I didn't really have anyone to talk to. So I felt like the page was who I talked to. And that was my way of actually opening up for a long, long time during my teens. And I think I think I got really comfortable. And this is what I find so fascinating about how we all respond to things differently and how you can't say, this is a technique and it, and it works for everyone. Is for me, I got really comfortable being alone and making decisions for myself and to trust my inner voice very early on because that's all I had to follow. And I didn't really have any guidance to follow my parents did a great job actually of not guiding me uh they they kind of left me to make my own decisions and choices and that freedom and for me that gave me the freedom to listen to my inner voice and understand how i felt and so i feel like i have this really strong intuition and awareness now of how i feel about everything i'm doing or going through or experiencing because i've had to deal with it alone for a long time i find solitude and silence and stillness to be beneficial for me as opposed to being surrounded by lots of people who are like giving me their opinions or their ideas or their guidance i don't find that healthy personally i find that very interesting of like just how different patterns bring us to where we are and where we find comfort and safety but I want to go back to you mentioning in the South Asian community, it was focused a lot on like do well in school and make sure you're raising your hand or participating and finishing your homework. Do you think that's why there's a stigma surrounding therapy and mental health? Was that the main priority growing up? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that a lot of my, and of course, I can't speak for the whole community. I can only speak for my friends in the South Asian community that I think would agree with me that there was such a focus on academic performance, on success, on also status. I think the idea of what will people say? What will people think in our community? How will people react to this? Like that was a constant rhetoric used in my wider family, less so in my parents, but in definitely my wider family and wider community, where you'd always hear that, where it felt like anything you wanted to do would be judged and the judgment would be important to the point that I was literally having a conversation with my sister the other day. And she was telling me that the family, the extended family was scared of doing something because of what will people say, even now, after all these years. And, and obviously these are elders, not people in, in our generation. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, like, how is it that people at 60, 70 years old are still worried about what people will say? Like that hurt me. I felt so saddened by that because it means you've always lived your life in that way. So I think that has caused massive stigma against therapy. And I would say that if, you know, most people in our generation recommended to our elders to see a therapist, it wouldn't be welcomed. And the honest response would be, but I don't have any mental issues or I don't have any issues. And I think there's two challenges, right? One is a lack of education on what therapy is. And I think that's a big thing in and of itself. I think we're living in a time where I think people are starting to understand that our physical health and mental health are the same. You would see a physical therapist, so why not a mental therapist? And so I think people are starting to see that. So I think there's a lack of education 
a lot of it is just they just don't know what therapists are for and what therapy does. And then the other side is this denial that they had to be strong. It's almost like no one ever asked them how they felt. And so I don't really judge that generation or criticize them for it or criticize the community. I actually feel the opposite. I feel a sense of compassion because when my mom moved to London when she was 16 with less than eight pounds in her pocket and built a life for herself and then me and my sister and everyone else, no one ever asked her on that journey how she feels. Like, I don't think she's ever had to answer that question. And she didn't have the time to stop and think about it because there were survival needs that were in place. And so I feel a sense of compassion. And I feel that if every young person, if they can, if their relationship allows it, to ask their parents, how do you feel? How are you? Tell me about your childhood. Tell me about the struggles you went through rather than expecting them to ask us and do that for us and play that role for us where they don't have the education. They don't have this podcast. They don't have better help. So to me, as much as I see their the stigma, I also understand where that stigma comes from. And I, I just really hope that a lot of people go home and ask their parents how they dealt with their struggles uh, because they had some real ones. What you just said hit home for me. I'm I'm Middle Eastern and my family immigrated to the U.S. when I was eight years old. My mom and I had this conversation the other day because I was talking to her about the shame that I experienced growing up based on what other people think, right? It's like when you have this like worry in that culture, I think is very similar in terms of like that collectivist culture where it's like we're a community and we don't, we need to be careful what we say because if we say it this way, this person might think that. And, you know, there is a lot of mental health stigma because in the culture, it was seen as you're okay, you walk it off, <laughs> you, you you know, everyone gets through it. You have religion as well. Um, religion is a big, big part of some cultures that they say, okay, well, if you have God or if you have religion, then you shouldn't need a therapist, which is, there's nothing further from the truth than that. You can have both. But um, but it's, it's a deep conversation to have because I think it hit home when you said that, like, they didn't have it. They didn't know about it. There was no education. And that was exactly the, the conversation I had with my mother. I was like, I have this shame and this all of this stuff coming out and she's like you know I didn't know any better like we're moving to this country like this completely different place we don't have anything we don't know anything and we're scared so, so it's really important to have those conversations because what is the reason that they didn't you know cultivate this conversation with you what's the reason there is a stigma that exists I, I think those conversations are what we need to have more of every single day yeah I just think I've sat there a lot and thought about just the complexity of the human experience and how if you want to understand why someone behaves the way they behave you really have to unpack their past even if they haven't done it for themselves I've really tried to sit down and I also think in the South Asian community parents don't really talk about their experience or their struggles. So there's not this passing on of history. My parents never talked about their challenges growing up because they didn't see them as challenges because, again, they didn't have time to see them as challenges. They saw it as their life. And so when I've sat down with them as I've grown older and understood the, the real pain they went through, I've just become more and more empathetic towards them because I can't imagine what it felt like to go through some of the things they've been through. So I think helping someone unpack their past is a healthy way for you to understand how they are in the present and mm -hmm. how you want to be in the future. So taking it back, what made you feel 
that you wanted to do this life after becoming a monk, right? What made you want to do this? When I met a monk for the first time, his name was Garanga Das. I talk about it in my book, Think Like a Monk. I'd met people at 18 that were rich and famous and beautiful and attractive and strong and powerful. But I don't think I'd met anyone who is truly happy. And he was happy and he is happy. He's still a monk today and we, we're really good friends and he's, he's a massive mentor for me in my life. And so at 18, my role model shifted from being athletes, celebrities, CEOs to being a monk. Literally, that's what happened to me. It's almost like I met someone. I was like, no, that's my role model. Like, that's the person I should be learning from. And so as soon as he started teaching me, I was like, wow, I'm, I've got to share this with people. It's almost like you found the cure to a disease and you want to share it freely because you feel so blessed that you've got access to this. And then when I started to share it with my friends and they were benefiting from it as well, and I would see their lives change, I was like, okay, this works. And then, of course, when I left being a monk, that's when I realized that my life would be incomplete if I couldn't share this as part of my life, because as a monk, that's all we did. And when I came back, like I said, it was one of the most depressing moments in my life because I felt that I'd got divorced from the love of my life. Since I was 18, my dream was to become a monk. And it's almost like the dream of like playing in the NFL or playing in the NBA. It's the same thought process. I know it sounds radical and weird, but that's how it felt to me. It was like, if someone dreamed of being in the NBA, they made it. And then in three years, they got injured and realized that this wasn't going to work for them. That's how I felt. Or it felt like I just got married to the love of my life for three years and now she broke up with me. One of the reasons that I'm so grateful that I left is because I realized I had become more attached to being a monk than my purpose as a monk. And having to leave helped me extract my purpose without the identity. And that is one of the most beautiful things I've ever had to do because now I didn't have an external sense of being to case my purpose. And I had to see if I could figure out my purpose without any external casing, safety, stability, security, financial stability. And so when I left, I knew I wanted to share everything I learned, but I had no idea how. And, you know, this was around 2013 when I left. And I just tried to start sharing it with whoever cared. But when I moved back to London, I saw a lot of my friends were stressed out in corporate jobs. I saw a lot of my friends were burnt out. And I started to reconnect with them. And some of them started inviting me into their companies to give talks and teach meditations. And then when I joined a company, I went back into the workplace because I needed to pay the bills and take care of my day-to-day. I you had to write down an interesting fact about yourself on the first day to introduce yourself. So my interesting fact was I lived as a monk and I can teach meditation. And, and what ended up happening was that Accenture, the company I worked for, was also prioritizing mental well-being and mental health in such a phenomenal way. And they have fantastic programs around burnout. And they were leading the way back in 2013. And so they started giving me opportunities to teach meditation inside the company. And so I was asked at the company retreat in 2014 to lead a meditation session for a thousand people, my peers in the organization. They had no idea who I was. Here I was, this you know new kid on the block teaching them about meditation. 
but it went so well that I then traveled across the world for the company teaching meditation. I just found this very natural expression of bringing my passion into the workplace. And so I often recommend to people to bring their passions into the workplace because your workplace can be an incredible uh, birthplace for your purpose and for your passion rather than thinking they have to be two separate things. Thank you for sharing your story. It's extremely interesting. And I love that you centered it back to finding your purpose. That's something we talk about a lot. Even on this podcast, we've been talking about it a lot. Like when you're feeling depressed or when you're feeling like you don't know where you're going in life, finding that purpose as to why you started will really help you get out of it. Yeah. When people say, you know, when you ask people, what do you want to be? And they say, I want to be happy. It's a challenging thing to kind of talk about because so many people just strive for happiness, but happiness is just a moment in time. And so when we're constantly striving for happiness, then we're never satisfied. Instead, like what you're saying is living your purpose, living your values. Like, And that question that you got asked, like, do you want to show up even if it's for a small group or do you want it to be huge? And I think in our world today with social media being where it's at and everyone trying to make it, I think it's really difficult because you see it all over the place, you know, people doing it and then maybe posting something, putting it out there in the world and then deleting it if it's not doing well, you know, for, you know, social media content creators, uh, you know, anyone, anyone really putting it themselves out there. And when you, when you start to look at it from an external validation point of view, you're never going to be satisfied. But when you do it because you have a purpose, because you want have something to share with the world or because it brings you joy, then even when you're not happy, you're living your values. Even when you're going through a rough patch, you're going to get back on track because you continue to do the things that are meaningful in your life. You're always going to have purpose. And I think deep depression happens when we lose purpose as well. We, we don't have things going for us. And we also don't know what our purpose is because we've been seeking external validation. Yeah. And it, and it was as satisfying then as it is now. Like I remember being in an audience where five to 10 people showed up, I never saw that as, oh man, only five to 10 people showed up. Like I loved, I was so grateful that five to 10 people showed up to hear me speak or, or learn from me or be coached by me or whatever it was. And I feel like it was as satisfying then as it is now. It's been satisfying the whole time because I've been able to see transformation in people's lives. And, and I think that's where if you get focused on the transformation, it satisfies you so much more deeply than the award or the, or the receiving of a external validation that you've done something because seeing human change is, there's nothing more satisfying than that. I always say to people that when I bump into people in real life, that to me is so much more satisfying than reading a comment. Connection, human connection and, you know, seeing the world strive and be in a good place, which brings me to, to my next question, because um, why do you think there's so much suffering in this world today? I think that's, that's something that we're all seeing. Yeah, I, I'd say that there's suffering in the world because it's designed in that way to some degree. You know, it's amazing to believe that suffering and pain is something no one wants but it's completely unavoidable by every person on the planet. Like that's a really interesting paradox that no one in the world, if they could choose, would ever choose pain or suffering, but that we all are bound to experience it in some way. Now, what's fascinating is that we create platforms from which we believe there will be no more suffering. So we say things like, okay, but when I get that job, then I won't be in pain. 
okay, no, when I, when I make a million dollars, then I won't be in pain. Okay, no, when I get a million followers, then I won't be in pain. Okay, when I'm married and I finally find the right guy or girl or partner, then I won't be in pain. And so we keep creating expectations of platforms that when we reach them, pain will be removed. But everyone from the wealthiest, most famous person on the planet down to the person that doesn't have the resources is suffering some type of pain. And in their own experience, that pain is true, it's valid, it's real, and it's super visceral and physical for them. It's not their imagination. I think that pain and suffering has been designed to make us reflect and to make us introspect on why we're here, what life is truly for, and to help those who are suffering more than us, deeper than us, or who are suffering what what we've overcome. It can be simplified to the experience of, if I eat badly, how do I feel the next morning? I don't feel good. And what is that pain and suffering doing? It's teaching me to not eat badly, right? If I get drunk and I have a hangover and I get drunk really badly and I have a hangover, what's that showing me? It's showing me this is the natural consequence of this action. Now you have a choice to decide whether you want that consequence again. And I think because it's not been explained to us that simply, we don't often realize uh, that in relationships and in many areas, we keep creating more pain for ourselves through our choices. Uh, And I've done that a lot in my own life through relationships, mistakes, diet, (laughs) food, lack of exercise, whatever it may be, where I've created more pain for myself by the choices I've made, even though I've already had an experience of it before. I think you brought up one really important thing, which is like the the resistance of pain and suffering just creates more pain and suffering. We all are going to experience pain, but the resistance to actually let it be there, like our numbing out methods, whether it's drinking or drugs or, um, you know, binge eating, whatever, whatever you use in order to numb your feelings and lack the experience of the emotion is just generating more of it because you're not letting it move through you. You're not letting it come out. You're not validating your own feelings. So we try to just constantly push things away and it just gets bigger and bigger. It's like a shaken up Coke bottle and all of a sudden you open it up and it explodes rather than like allowing it to be there. Um, And you know, happiness, joy, sadness, you can't have one without the other. You wouldn't know what joy was if you didn't know what sadness was. Like you couldn't actually experience those things like what would that even mean so i love that you know you brought that up it's so profound and so powerful when we finally allow ourselves to experience yeah it's like i always feel about it like weather it's like if it's raining outside and i'm like i don't want it to rain and then it rains and i then have decided i'm already having a bad day because i didn't want it to rain whereas i could have prepared with an umbrella and a raincoat I could have planned to play board games indoors. You know, there's the, the, I feel like that's how I've always learned to see it. Now, I also felt, by the way, when I said that to you, I was in denial about a lot of my feelings for a long time because I felt they made me weaker. And, and I know a lot of people like that who, who are like me, where we are able to force our mind to not see negative because we feel weak if we allow that in. And I started to realize that that was actually a weakness, Mm -hmm. that to not allow the emotion in was the biggest weakness, because now I was suppressing in, like you said, the Coke bottle example, whereas being able to accept, okay, it is raining today. 
okay, what am I going to do about it, right? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. No such thing as a negative or unhealthy emotion. They're emotions. They serve a purpose. And a movie that I like really love that teaches kids about this inside out where you know, oh, yeah, you see like yeah. like sadness and like everyone like is mad at sadness at first, but then like you see the purpose of sadness and connection and empathy and we can't function without them. We need them. They serve a purpose. So the better question is, what is this emotion trying to tell me? What is missing? What is lacking? What do I need? Rather than why is this happening? I'm, I'm in the wrong or I'm weak. So what do you do when you mentioned you experienced depression in the past? You've ex- you've gone through a lot. You were trying to push emotions away for a while. Now you're you're more open to them. What do you do to process emotions when you're feeling down or to to better your mental health? I mean, at that time, and and I think that's a good time to talk about because it was an extreme experience of depression, of losing my monk identity, feeling like I'd been divorced, and coming back to a life where everyone said we knew you'd fail, right? We knew you wouldn't make it as a monk. Or you failed at being a monk? Like, what happened? Like, what went wrong? And then I'd left with a lot of criticism where people said, you'd never get a job again. You'll never make money again. Like, it wasn't a moment where people were like, oh, Jay, you're going to live this amazing life and tell this story. It wasn't like that. It was, you're a loser and this is the worst decision. And what about your parents? Like, how are they going to feel? And so... When I came back, I was coming back to people saying, I told you so, or you're not going to get a job. And guess what? I applied to 40 jobs, companies that would have accepted me three years before. I was a straight A's, first class honors student my whole life. And 40 companies rejected me before an interview because surprise, surprise, no one wanted to hire a monk, right? Their response was like, what are your transferable skills? Sitting still and being silent? Like, we don't need that in our company. And so I was rejected from 40 companies until I finally got a job. And so to me at that time, what I did or how I dealt with that emotion was I realized that I had to learn. And this has always become my way of processing emotions. I realized that any emotion I'm feeling is because of a lack of knowledge or skill that I have. If I'm able to turn that painful emotion into the action of developing a ability, quality, or skill, then I'll be able to overcome the emotion and work through the emotion in a healthy way. And so I realized that at that time, I was feeling the emotion of pressure, depression, stress, anxiety. Will I ever get a job? Will I ever make money? Will I be able to be in society? And I realized the only way to overcome that was to develop the skills and the qualities and abilities that would get me back into the workplace. And so I woke up every day, I dressed as if I was going to the going to work, and I would go to the library, and I would study wisdom books that I lived, studied as a monk, and I would study business books. And I would read, and I would make notes, and I would learn, and I would try and develop skills, so that now I knew if I was given an interview, or I got an opportunity to be on a phone, I would actually be confident enough to hold my own because I was developing the skills, the abilities, and qualities. The point is, for me, is that I always look at an emotion as, what quality have I not learned yet? What ability have I not learned yet? What skill have I not learned yet? Because as soon as I have an ability, quality, or a skill, so it could be a quality you have to develop right? Maybe you're stressed and anxious because you haven't developed the quality of compassion or empathy. And I'm trying to build that muscle more and more. Yeah, it does. And then you're saying once you learn the quality or learn more about it, you're able to cope better with the emotion and work through it. 
Correct. Not that I never feel that way again, <laughs> because I still feel those things today. But yes, that to me, it's almost like you're trying to develop a toolkit and a toolkit isn't as simple as uh, I have a breathing. And I, I do have breathing exercises that I do and I'm stressed. But that to me is a very short term measure. Uh, it's not really processing the ability that if I develop mindfulness, then I'll be better at dealing with this. So to me, there's the short-term tool of let me change my breathing rhythm to slow down my heart rate and relax, which I use a lot of. But then there's also a mindset shift of I can learn something that's going to help me deal with this better, that I do have an opportunity to develop a new skill or ability or quality. Yeah, I think that's the definition of healing. Yeah, you're incorporating both the body part and the thought mm -hmm. part. So it's like, yeah, relaxing your heart rate, releasing whatever it need, you need to do to calm your nervous system down and then also saying, okay, what do I need? Changing the way you cope with triggers or react to triggers. What do you think all people can do to destigmatize mental health? We love Jay Shetty. It was a real eye-opener listening to Jay open up about his childhood and being bullied for his weight, school ethic, and for not fitting in with his peers. This affected his health whether he knew it or not back then. And sometimes we don't realize how much something from our past or even our present is affecting us. Jay mentioned some wonderful coping activities like journaling, listening to music, and performing in theater. And he recommends finding someone qualified to talk about whatever you're struggling with. If you find yourself needing to talk to somebody, BetterHelp Online Therapy will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. It's way more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. And it makes getting therapy easier. Just schedule your message, phone, or video session and complete it from your phone, in your car, in your home, or wherever you are. We want to give Jay another shout out for being so vulnerable and for the amazing work he does every single day, making wisdom go viral. He's a huge proponent of therapy and we love to watch him make the world a better place with all that he does. There's a special offer for getting better listeners. Get 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash getting better. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help.com slash getting better. I think one of the biggest things we can do is to, first of all, ask people how they are. You started this podcast by asking, how are you really feeling? And simply because you asked the question is how you're really feeling, I told you how I really felt. If you had said, how are you feeling? I would have said, I'm great. That's all I would have said. And often what I find is we don't ask deep enough questions to the people we claim to know deeply and then we're sad they give us shallow answers. But we don't actually ask them an interesting enough question. And half the time, we ask the question not even listening to the answer. How many of us, when we ask someone, hey, how's it going, are even saying more than just hey? Even when we ask that question, all we're actually saying is hey. But we say, hey, how's it going? And someone goes, yeah, sure, I'm good. Or okay, fine. And then we go, yes, yeah, so what have you been up to? And it's almost like that answer is completely glossed over. And so, I feel that asking more thoughtful questions of our friends, our family. Uh, the other thing that I think we can all do to destigmatize mental health is to, first of all, work through our own. I, I think that's the biggest one. 
I think there's a lot of conversation about like, let's share it on social media. Let's start a hashtag trend. Let's, you know, do the selfie, whatever it may be. And I really think the best posters and adverts for mental health are people who've worked on their own and worked with therapists. They've worked with, um, you know, counselors, whatever they need, they've worked through it. And then they're able to tell their journey and their story that will destigmatize mental health. When people think, oh, the people I look up to have been to therapy. The people that I admire, my friend that I thought was perfect has been to therapy. My friend who I thought had the perfect marriage and the perfect job and the perfect child has been to therapy. And that's why they're better at dealing with it. And so I think there can be no better way to destigmatize mental health than by each and every one of us caring for our own and taking the journey we need to take uh, and then sharing that with others. And asking, like you said, asking those deep questions to listen, ask to understand, ask to feel, and ask to get close to people. I think we we are in a, in a very shallow world in those questions. Yeah. And don't judge the response. There's so many judgments that we put on. And I feel like when you do that, you stigmatize mental health because now people feel that they're situation in life doesn't allow for them to experience things. And, and I felt this all the way through all my different transitions, whether I was working with people who were just start finding their feet and starting out, or whether I've been working with, you know, some of the most incredibly successful people on the planet. It's like, there's no, there's nothing that frees you from having to work on your mental health. I don't have an excuse to stop working on myself. It just doesn't exist. I can't say that I've arrived and from this day onwards, my mind will never feel like uh, pain or unhealthy again. That's the thing about mental health and physical health. You don't arrive and like end. It's a constant journey. No matter how much healing you've done, life continues to happen. It doesn't stop because you went to therapy for a year. You're going to continue to go through things. And that is a journey that we all constantly have to continue working on. And on that point, do you think it would change anything if we taught children to focus on their mental health from a young age? Yeah, I, I've thought about this for a long time. And and I think that the way I think about teaching children or teaching younger young adults is that it needs to be taught as emotional awareness and understanding and not in this reactive way. A, a lot of our language and verbiage around mental health right now is reactive. Like it's it's almost coming at it feeling like no one wants to learn about it. So even us in the mental health world, we come at people and we'll be like, no, 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 but you need to think about your mental health. But no, 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 you need to prioritize this. And it's all reactive and it's not proactive and it's not coming from a place of education. It's coming from a place of trying to get people to unlearn. And so I think anything we do with children has to be set up in a healthy, proactive way. So rather than being like, when you feel stressed, breathe like this. I don't think that's the healthy way of teaching a child. I think a way of teaching a child is explain to them what stress is and when they're likely to feel it and learn to notice it and then know what to do with it. And so I feel like we have to go a few steps back. I think, yes, teaching kids about mental health will be beautiful, but not from the language and verbiage that we have right now. I think that's so powerful because it's not about anything working now. It's it's about things that you do. Like a breathing exercise is never going to work to stop your anxiety forever. It's a practice. And one of the things that's really important 
that comes to mind is we need to practice these things when we're feeling quote unquote good because our brains do make associations with certain activities and bad moments in our lives. So then it actually has the opposite effect. No, I was just saying about the making sure it's not reactive or not waiting until something already happens. And like you said, what is stress? Not don't be stressed. Like let's educate and start from a deeper level. And that's something we're not doing. It's something we have to do. But final question, what is one piece of advice you would like to leave for our listeners regarding mental health, healing, or anything that you want? I'd say no matter how small or how insignificant at this point in time your anxiety, stress, or pressure feel, start that journey as soon as you can. I, for a long time, felt I was so resilient and so strong and that none of this stuff could affect me. I was one of those people. And then when it affected me, it almost hit me harder. And I think wherever you are on the journey, start that journey of seeking help, of seeking guidance, of building practices as soon as you can. You know, if you had a little pain in your foot or your arm, you wouldn't just let it sit there and develop and grow and hopefully it will go away you would go and see a doctor hopefully and so I would say in the same way I really encourage people to take those early steps for their own selves and their own journey and don't try to be understood by the people around you when you're doing it I think we wait for people around us to think what we're doing is the right decision and with therapy you depending on your background you may not find that there's this positive approach to it but you still have to do it for yourself and so please take that proactive approach start that journey as soon as you can this has been such an insightful deep conversation so thank you so much Wow, what an amazing conversation we just had with Jay Shetty. I think uh, this was one of the most profound and and deep conversations we've had. He is so amazing. I'm just so excited and still reflecting back onto different things he said because they were so powerful. Micheline, what was your favorite part of the episode? I really liked our conversation about like suffering and pain and how we cope with things and how he talked about like, you know, the mindfulness and values. I think that's always going to be my favorite part of every episode we we talk about because it's something we often miss. So it was really cool to to hear his own personal story. And for me, I resonate a lot because I feel like even though we come from different backgrounds and cultures, we still have a lot of similarities in terms of upbringing. Shame, actually, one of the things he brought up at the beginning, there's just a lot of shame just to see his own transformation and how he became a monk. And he thought how he thought that that was like his path, but then he had to get out of being a monk because he was like, he felt like it was no longer serving its purpose uh, for him. He wasn't doing it for the right reasons. And so he stepped back and I thought that was so insightful and powerful because he still lives with those teachings, but it's in a different way. What about you? I actually like just sitting with him and listening to his story. I don't think I've ever heard it in depth. So it was really nice to hear the authentic version and to give him that space to be able to tell it. I love the way he speaks about things and I love how deep he is. And um, I feel like anyone that listened to this episode will get a lot out of it because you're right. He, he Even though he was talking to us from his own personal perspective, there was still a lot of really like 
good information and and stuff that could really help people. So many actionable takeaways, and I hope you all love it as much as we did. Thank you so much for listening today. This discussion is so important to ending the mental health stigma. If you want to help the mental health movement, you can do so by leaving a written review for this podcast to help it reach more people. If you want to dive deeper into these topics and learn more about mental health, make sure you subscribe and follow Micheline and Nadia's mental health podcast, Mind-Fully Healing, anywhere you stream your podcasts.